You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I have a question for you. What will your legacy be? Will you be remembered for your commitment to liberty, or will you waver at the sight of adversity? Will you hold the line and stand for truth no matter how popular it may be, or will you bend to peer pressure? Will you let your faults and failures define your story, or will you overcome your challenges and push forward in pursuit of something greater? Will you stand firm and be a champion of freedom? Or will you let it be said that you did nothing? Throughout our history, ordinary people have risen to the occasion to do extraordinary things in the name of liberty. These people were not perfect, far from it. Yet in spite of their faults and failures, they never looked back. No matter how many times they fell, they continued to get back up. This is their legacy. Because of their commitment, our world is more free. Each and every one of us has the power to follow in their footsteps. It's up to us to pick up that torch. Ask anyone to name an American president other than the current one. They're almost certain to get at least two. Abraham Lincoln, for his involvement in ending slavery, and George Washington, the first president. Washington is often referred to as the father of our country, and for good reason. He was the indispensable man during the American Revolution, and well into the early stages of the American Republic. His leadership and example led us to victory against the world's largest empire. After that victory, his leadership once again saved this country, from falling down the path of monarchy and set the example that all other presidents would strive for and often fail to achieve. His importance to the creation of the United States is indisputable. What is sometimes disputed, however, is his title as America's first president. Indeed, George Washington was the first president under the executive branch as we know it today. After the Constitution was ratified by the states, Washington was the obvious choice to hold this important governmental role, so much so that he hardly had any say in the matter. He was going to be president, and he was without question the first commander-in-chief of the armed forces. However, the specific title of president is not something that he himself can claim. 
Indeed, there were in fact 10 individuals who held the title of president under the much weaker Articles of Confederation. Although the actual office they held was a shell compared to what the office of the presidency would eventually become after Washington, these 10 individuals were technically president of the United States. Some notable individuals to hold this position included John Hancock, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas McKean, and first among them, Samuel Huntington. In fact, the Norwich Historical Society in Connecticut, where Huntington is from, has lobbied Congress to make Samuel Huntington recognized as the first official president, rather than Washington. Regardless of how you categorize who was first, Samuel Huntington's role in the American Revolution as president under the Articles of Confederation was vital to the security of our independence. On July 16, 1731, Nathaniel and Maitable Huntington welcomed their newborn son into the world, Samuel Huntington. Samuel was born in Wyndham, Connecticut. He enjoyed a large family with nine other siblings and humble roots, while three of his siblings would go on to study theology at Yale. Samuel would not receive any formal education. Instead, his parents had him run the family farm and apprentice as a cooper, a craftsman who was trained to make casks or barrels. However, this was what his parents had envisioned for his life, not what Samuel himself desired. He wanted to aim much higher than maintaining his family farm throughout his life. When he was 22, he was determined to become a lawyer, so he left the farm. From there, he embarked on a personal journey of self-education and enlightenment. He started to consume as many books on the law as he could find. He often borrowed books from friends and neighbors around town to help him prepare for the bar exam. Becoming a lawyer in those early days required much less schooling. Instead, it was treated almost like a trade. If you could show proficiency in the practice, no matter how much formal education you went through, you were able to become an attorney. While wealthy families could afford proper schooling, it was custom for most lawyers to go through an apprenticeship with a local attorney. In fact, this was often the case for many of the founders who became lawyers. In 1754, Samuel Huntington passed the bar exam and was admitted to practice the law. Shortly afterward, he moved to Norwich, Connecticut, the place where he would call home, and opened up his law practice. Already, Huntington was setting himself apart from the status quo. While his brothers received some of the best education at Yale, he was building a strong legal career from the ground up. His passion for the law and education wasn't the only thing he came to love at this time, as he was pursuing his legal career, he fell in love with Martha Devotion, the daughter of the minister who he borrowed books from while studying the law. In 1761, Samuel married Martha, and his legal career was really beginning to take off in Norwich. Over the next few years, he built up his reputation as a strong but honest lawyer, catching the attention of several notable individuals in colonial society, even reaching outside of Connecticut. 
1765 was a big year for Samuel. The people of Norwich believed he would serve them well in the General Assembly, having completely earned their trust and respect. They sent him as their representative, but additionally the General Assembly selected him to be Justice of the Peace of Norwich. Finally, it would also be around this time that Huntington was selected as King's Attorney for the Colony of Connecticut, the predecessor to State Attorney General. It seemed as if Huntington had his life made, setting himself up for being in the good graces of the king himself. If he wanted to, he could easily have provided himself with a lavish and simple lifestyle, without much stress at all. However, his conscience would pull him in another direction. 1765 was influential on Huntington for other reasons than personal success. In London, Parliament passed the infamous Stamp Act in an attempt to pay off the debts they accumulated for the French and Indian War. Samuel was very diplomatic and earned a reputation in the colony for breaking compromises that were agreeable to both parties. However, the actions coming out of Parliament irked him just as much as it did his fellow colonists. He remembered growing up on his farm the struggle of the common man. How could it be that Parliament expected the Americans to both fight London's wars and pay off their debts? Given his diplomatic nature, it's not a stretch to see Huntington hoping and praying for peaceful reconciliation with England, as many founders did early on. Not everyone who formed this nation was a Samuel Adams or a Patrick Henry, ready to burn everything down and start from scratch. However, no matter how many alluring opportunities presented themselves to Huntington, if he sided with London, he found himself unable to turn his back on his fellow countrymen. Although the Stamp Act was repealed the following year, things continued to deteriorate between the American colonies and their mother country. The Declaratory Acts was immediately passed after the repeal of the Stamp Act, reinforcing the supposed right of Parliament to tax the colonies, however, and whenever they saw fit. In 1767, the Townsend Acts were passed, placing duties on everyday commodities needed and used by the colonists, such as glass, paper, paint, and, most notably, tea. These acts fueled the anger of the colonists, specifically by individuals in New England, such as Samuel Huntington, as it threatened to choke out their livelihoods. This anger sparked protests and eventually resulted in the Boston Massacre in 1770. In an attempt to soften frustration and rebuild relations between the colonies and Great Britain, Parliament repealed the Townsend Acts, removing all duties except for one a tax on tea. This tax on tea further outraged the colonists and directly resulted in the Boston Tea Party. By this point, Parliament was done trying to play ball and keep the Americans happy. They locked down Boston Harbor, revoked the charter of the Massachusetts colony, quartered troops in their homes, and stripped the people of the colony of virtually all their rights after the passage of the punitive Intolerable Acts of 1774, otherwise known as the Coercive Acts. Fear, not diplomacy, was the name of the game at this point, and that was how Great Britain would continue to govern the colonies. 
Samuel Huntington was always sympathetic to the cause of the colonies and viewed the Stamp Act and Townsend Acts as oppressive, but the coercive acts pushed him over the edge. They were nothing short of tyrannical, and Great Britain had no right to punish an entire colony for the deeds of a few, even if they were entitled to compensation after the Tea Party. He had already resigned from his position as King's Attorney in 1773, and assumed a position as Assistant Judge at the Superior Court of Connecticut. He became outspoken against the coercive acts, and made his case, both to the Assembly and to his constituents, that this British tyranny must no longer be ignored. It was time for the colonists to take action. In June 1774, he was chosen as one of nine to draft a resolution concerning, quote, this alarming crisis of affairs relative to the natural rights and privileges of the people during a meeting in Norwich. The result was a resolution boldly positioning Connecticut to stand with its sister colonies to defend the, quote, liberties and immunities of British America. This propelled Samuel to the forefront of the Patriot cause in Connecticut. The First Continental Congress took place in Philadelphia that fall, though Samuel Huntington was unable to attend. That would soon be corrected the following year as he was chosen as a delegate to the Second Continental Congress in October of 1775. In January of 1776, he arrived in Philadelphia, along with others from the Connecticut delegation, such as Roger Sherman, who would soon be chosen to join the Committee of Five in drafting the Declaration of Independence. Huntington's impact on the Second Continental Congress was actually not very substantial at first. Upon arrival, he was struck with smallpox and found himself to be unable to carry out any responsibilities until February. When Huntington did speak, he strived to maintain his level-headed demeanor. Powerful orators like Richard Henry Lee and the passionate patriots like John Adams fueled the spirits of the delegates. John Dickinson and George Reed took matters into another direction finding every possible reason why separation was a bad idea. Samuel Huntington was not a passionate voice for independence, but rather a steady voice, a voice of reason, pushing the Patriot cause forward without it spiraling out of control. Still, this meant he wouldn't find himself elevated to the upper echelons of historical prominence like those fierce supporters of separation. Nonetheless, this steady approach was just as vital to how events transpired in 1776 as much as any other. In June, Samuel Huntington was present when Richard Henry Lee offered his resolution to formally declare independence. Shortly thereafter, the Assembly in Connecticut voted on and approved the congressional delegation to move forward with a vote in favor of the motion. And so they did. On July 2nd, 1776, as the official tally on the motion kicked off, Samuel Huntington, with Oliver Wilcott and Roger Sherman, voted in favor of independence from Great Britain. After the vote, Huntington's impact on Congress continued to be subtle. However, the respect he was earning among his fellow delegates elevated his reputation, as it had in Connecticut before. 
He was eventually re-elected to Congress, and when John Jay, who was president of the Continental Congress at the time, left for an appointment as minister to Spain, Huntington was elected as the Congress's sixth president in 1779. This was a special occasion, however. Unlike presidents of the Continental Congress before him, America was about to have its first governing document ratified. Immediately after independence, Congress began to work on the Articles of Confederation to unify the states and have some form of governing structure to work with. Debates were long and drawn out, but eventually there was an agreement made. The articles were voted on and approved by Congress on November 15, 1777. Samuel Huntington signed the articles, but the process for ratification proved difficult. It took two additional years for the states to ratify the document. By the time it was, Samuel Huntington found himself in the position of President of the Congress. The Articles of Confederation became America's first constitution on March 1st, 1781, and with it, Samuel Huntington technically became America's first president underneath them. By the time that Samuel Huntington acquired his position of so-called power in 1779, the American Revolution was in turmoil. The war effort was not in a strong position, and morale among the public was reaching a new low. It didn't seem like their efforts were going to pay off, and why should it have? George Washington was leading an army mostly composed of farmers with little military experience to fight off against the world's largest and most powerful fighting force to date. From the beginning, pulling off such a victory was going to be a miracle. There had been a few important victories won by the Continental Army, however. Notably, the Battle of Saratoga brought the Americans a much-needed win. During the conflict, Major General Benedict Arnold had successfully repealed British forces, acquiring a leg injury in the process. Not only did he fight bravely, but he also fought with a cunning strategy. The success of the battle entitled Arnold with some bragging rights. In early 1777, Congress snubbed him of the rank of Major General in favor of five of his subordinates despite his long and impressive military career. This caused him great offense and only remained in the military at the request of General Washington. From the perspective of Congress, however, his heroics also presented an issue. He was very rash and often irresponsible in the heat of battle. A couple of months later, after successfully leading his men to victory, Congress reinstated his rank, but not his seniority. Yet another embarrassing snub. 
Arnold maintain a sense of bitterness. As he recovered from his injuries from Saratoga, Arnold spent a portion of the war in Philadelphia in 1778 as military governor. During this time, he lived the high life and even fraternized with many families in the areas with loyalist sympathies. Furthermore, he capitalized on his position to bring himself personal profits. Rumors swirled of his corruption, rumors that weren't entirely incorrect. This led to a court-martial and a conviction of Arnold after the matter was addressed in Congress. In January 1780, Washington wrote to then-President Samuel Huntington for transcripts of the proceedings. Quote, I herewith transmit your excellency the proceedings and sentence of the general court-martial in the case of Major General Arnold for the approbation or disapprobation of Congress. What neither Washington nor Huntington knew was that Arnold had already reached his breaking point with Congress and the entire American cause. Before the end of 1779, Benedict Arnold had opened a line of communication with the British, making a deal to betray the Americans in return for money and rank in the British Army. Having one of the Americans' most successful military generals as a mole was an opportunity the British did not want to pass up. In the preceding months, Arnold carried on as if nothing had changed, secretly feeding the British information so that they could deal serious blows to the war efforts. He was offered command at West Point in New York, and Arnold accepted. During this time, he gave detailed reports of the conditions of West Point through a secret line to the British and weakened the defenses at the fort once he assumed command. He offered to surrender West Point, which was a key stronghold for the American forces, to the British for £20,000, or almost $30,000. The plot was nearly a success until British General John Andre, Arnold's contact, was captured and subsequently hanged as a spy. The jig was up for Benedict Arnold. The Americans knew of his treason, and he fled to the British at the end of 1780. The revelation of Arnold's treachery would have been a hard pill to swallow for Samuel Huntington. Not only did the Americans nearly lose the war then and there, but Arnold was also born in Norwich, Connecticut, the very location that Huntington lived. However, Arnold's treachery was not over just yet. As Huntington assumed the position of the first president under the Articles of Confederation in March, Arnold, now a brigadier general in the British Army, was leading the charge against the Americans on the battlefield. Notably, in January 1781, Arnold led troops to invade Virginia, capture the capital of Richmond, and rampage communities and settlements up the James River. He connected there with Lord Cornwallis, who, upon learning that the state legislature was reconvening, in Charlottesville, sent bloody Colonel Tarleton to go capture the legislature and Governor Jefferson. Fortunately, they managed to escape their grasp. While many would have cracked under the pressure of these unbelievably bleak sequences of events, Samuel Huntington remained level-headed, as always, and maintained the American cause as president. 
Under the Articles of Confederation, there was a limited amount that he could do, but he did work with Congress to better maintain the conditions of the soldiers and the war effort. More importantly, he'd never let his resolve slip. He was as committed as ever to independence. Ironically enough, despite the major blow to the war effort that Arnold's betrayal led to, it also served almost like a call to arms for Americans. Morale began to rise once again out of the anger that they had toward a turncoat. Huntington's cool and collected demeanor played an important role in bringing the country through this rough patch to the point that they could once again believe in the cause. Unfortunately, Huntington's health prevented him from continuing this leadership much longer. In July 1781, he resigned as president and started to head back to Connecticut. What he did not know was that his mutual home with Benedict Arnold would soon be Arnold's next target. As summer turned into fall, the American army had shifted its focus to Virginia, setting up the stage for the final act of the war. In September, General Clinton sought to capitalize on this moment as Americans marched to Virginia to collide with Cornwallis. With little defenses left in the North, Clinton gave the green light to launch a punitive offensive in his home of Connecticut. Arnold came through like a raging bull, torching everything in his path. He burned down the city of New London, less than 20 miles from his birthplace and Huntington's home of Norwich. They then took Fort Griswold, but not without a final stand by about 160 citizens refusing to give in to the traitorous Arnold without a fight. The British slaughtered 83 people and wounded 36. Fortunately, Huntington managed to avoid the turmoil in New London, but reports of what had happened spread across the country. Like with Arnold's initial betrayal, Americans became more determined than ever to defeat the British. One month later, during the Battle of Yorktown, the people of New London and the defenders of Fort Griswold were martyrs. Lafayette challenged his troops to, quote, remember New London as they charged into battle. Rather than quash the Americans' hopes, it re-sparked it. And General Washington emerged victorious in Virginia on October 19, 1781, effectively winning the war. Samuel Huntington's role as Confederation president is one that is often overlooked in the grand scale of the American Revolution, but it was crucial during one of America's darkest hours. Once Cornwallis surrendered, the world was forever transformed. Huntington, however, wished to rebuild his old life in this new and exciting world. He started to rebuild his law practice. He was elected as Lieutenant Governor of Connecticut in 1785 and then Governor the following year. During this time as Governor, Samuel oversaw many important steps for the infant state. Most notably, he worked to stabilize the post-war economy of the state, prohibited the slave trade, and presided over the Ratification Convention of Connecticut to ratify the U.S. Constitution, which he completely supported. His health, however, continued to decline over these years, and in 1796, he passed away and was buried in Norwich, Connecticut. His legacy seemed to continue on in his nephew, however, who bore the same name. 
After his uncle's death, Samuel H. Huntington moved to Cleveland and in 1808 became the third governor of Ohio, following in his uncle's footsteps. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed learning about Samuel Huntington. This is a figure and a time frame in the history of the American Revolution that is greatly overlooked. Uh, and I am glad that I was able to bring some attention to it in this episode. Uh, and I hope that you enjoyed it. We have two weeks left, two episodes left, in Season 1 of Profiles in Liberty. And next week, we are going to be discussing one of the most heroic actions of any founding father during the American Revolution, and that is with the character of Caesar Rodney and the other Midnight Ride. You may be familiar with Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, but Caesar Rodney held the other greatly monumental Midnight Ride for independence in 1776. So please tune in next week for that. Uh, in the meantime, if you don't mind, follow me on Twitter, at Caleb Franz. Be sure to check out We Are Libertarians on Twitter, at We, the letter R, Libertarians. Give us a rating, a five-star rating, and give us a, a little review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And then check out our newsletter, the Profiles in Liberty newsletter. We have new content there every other week, and that's where you can stay up to date with all the findings on the show. Until next week, this has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.